episode 324. ACOs, do they, in fact, improve the quality of care and reduce costs? Today, I speak with Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Recently, the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, by the way, their Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics, or LDI, put out a white paper called The Future of Value-Based Payments, A Roadmap to 2030. Spoiler alert, next week's show is with Dr. Mai Pham, an author of that paper, and it'll be a great show, so tune back in next week. But in the meantime, that paper made some really interesting points about ACOs, accountable care organizations. For example, they say that the average ACO shows a net savings of less than 1% per beneficiary after paying out shared savings with a 1% to 4% gross savings, although there's, in air quotes, modest quality improvements across readmissions, patient experience, and care coordination. Hmm. Net savings of less than 1% and modest improvements. I wanted to ask somebody who had attained great success with the ACO model what they thought about this average, rather unimpressive average. And you know what? I am so pleased to say that today we have not one, but two such superstars. Today's show features Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy. Nicole Bradbury spent 16 years on the payer side. She was instrumental in a lot of the quality and affordability programs, which led to her founding the Florida Association of ACOs, which she leads in her role as CEO. Also on the program today, we have Kelly Conroy. Kelly helped start the very successful Palm Beach ACO and was the executive director there for a number of years. She's also a co-founder with Nicole and founding board member at the Florida Association of ACOs, as well as a director of Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. So in this conversation, we jump right into the ACO deep end. So let me just review a few bullet points about ACOs to get us all level set here. The flavor of ACO we'll talk about today is the MSSP ACOs, the Medicare Shared Savings ACOs. The deal is this. We are not talking right now about Medicare Advantage patients. We are talking about Medicare FFS fee-for-service patients. Medicare fee-for-service patients get attributed to one of the many MSSP ACOs by where the patient gets their plurality of services over the past three years. So rough translation of that. If you're the doctor, this FFS patient, fee-for-service patient saw the most in the past three years, you get dibs on that patient. They're attributed to the MSSP ACO that you are in. A financial benchmark is then created for each of these attributed patients, i.e., how much has the patient cost over the past three years? Then, if, while the patient is part of your ACO, if that patient costs less than that benchmark, the ACO group gets a percentage of those savings, i.e., that's where the term shared savings comes in. 
This percentage the ACO gets can vary depending on the ACO model and how much upside-downside risk that ACO group is taking. Like in many things, the more risk, the bigger the upside. Here's an important note. In an ACO model, docs still get paid FFS as per usual. It's not like every single patient a doctor might see is attributed to them in this ACO model. So, you know, any given doctor could have some Medicare patients that are Medicare Advantage patients, and maybe there's some kind of alternative contract there. They might have regular FFS Medicare patients and those who maybe are attributed to somebody else's ACO. And then they have the patients that are attributed to them where they are now responsible for the upstream and downstream costs, as I just mentioned, and can get a piece of that savings action or cut a check back to CMS should things not go so well in the upstream downstream costs department. There's another implication here if you think about it. Patients don't necessarily know what's going on during this whole thing. It's not like Medicare Advantage where the patient has to actively sign up somewhere. So patient engagement at these ACOs is a big deal. If the patient suddenly starts going somewhere else, especially a somewhere else that costs the big bucks, the ACO where that patient is attributed is now on the hook. Likely we'll put out and ask an expert with today's guests, Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy, where we dig into some of this background a little bit deeper. So stay tuned for that, but we should be ready to dive into today's show with that. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Today we have Nicole Bradbury. Great to be here. And Kelly Conroy. Thank you for inviting us. I was going to ask you, what's in it for the patient? So if I'm a patient and I'm just a regular FFS kind of situation, how does my care outcomes experience, does it improve if I am part of an ACO or my services are being provided by an ACO that I'm a part of? Very much so. Think about healthcare in this country and what's wrong with it. The quality is not the highest in the world. And also the cost of it is very high. A lot of that is because of these systemic problems that exist, which bad transitions. Someone goes in the hospital, they go home, they don't understand their instructions, and they're back in the hospital with a readmission. Good transition is they go in the hospital and their PCP reaches out the moment or the moment they discharge or even before they discharge, schedules them in to come in and talk about what happened in the hospital and what their, what their follow-up should be. And when that happens a readmission is avoided. But let's go back further and say, what are the systemic problems that drive people into the hospital for emergency? You know, you might have a cardiac patient that, you know, has a cardiac diagnosis, is on some kind of med or program, but doesn't come in and see their doctor until there's a really critical emergency event. If I'm a PCP managing one of those patients, I can look and see that they need to really come in and see me or see their cardiologist every three months. If you do that, statistically, they're going to they're going to be in the hospital less. They're going to have better outcomes. They're going to be healthier. And so it's those kind of things that these payment models incent. And they're very successful in not only bringing costs down, but increasing quality and actually creating great patient experiences. The lack of care coordination between doctors and, and specialists, et cetera, you know, being proactive totally changes, you know, that view and that support for patients. And so it, it's much better outcomes. I was explaining it to somebody over the weekend, a stage four cancer friend of mine. And she said, you know, when I was explaining to her what an ACO was, she says, oh, that sounds like my patient advocate. And it's very similar to that. You may not actually have a patient advocate, although some ACOs do provide that for you, but you have a care coordinator and they help you navigate. Because as 
a fee-for-service patient in an ACO, the patient is still navigating themselves. And so the primary care never really knows what all of the other doctors and centers and hospitals are doing to their patient. So in this ACO model, you get all of the claims paid data for your whole population for three years, and you're able to see who else is talking to your patient and treating your patient. In that pen white paper, they said the advantages of this MSSP ACO seem to be modest improvements in readmissions, patient experience, and care coordination. But this is what I would love to have clarified. Also in that pen paper, it said the costs that were on average, just broad stroke, I'm I'm assuming across all ACOs that were formed by anyone, anywhere, the shared savings were one to 4% of overall spend. If I'm, you know, thinking about this in a purely fiscal context, and I'm assuming that I'm going to get like, let's say 1% shared savings, the upside for me might not be enough. I, I might be thinking like, why should I invest in all of the different, you know, the care coordination or the patient advocacy or, you know, any of the things that we've talked about here, because the upside might not be rich enough What am I not understanding? So, you know, if you look at Florida, you have a much different outcome. Florida is the most successful ACO marketplace in the country. There's reasons for that. We had a good managed care base. We have high spend, so there was a lot of opportunity here. And you also had a predominant group of people that were kind of independent, entrepreneurial, many of them physicians that really looked at this differently. If you look at other markets, you had hospitals that led the way. You've got all kinds of things around incentives and disincentives that led to less success. But if you look at Florida itself, they've changed outcomes. They've, tr- they've created major savings. The, the ACO that Kelly created, you know, is one of the most successful ACOs in the country. And they're t- willing to take a lot of risk because they believe in what they've put in place. So more than 1% to 4% then? Way more than 1% to 4%. I think that, you know, across the country, if you look at it in aggregate, you, you'll, and it, but if you start to, to break it down by what was different in the markets that were successful, you'll see that there's an absolute roadmap there. And we shouldn't give up on these models. The point being that it's not always PCPs that are driving the show. It could be a hospital. And if a hospital that makes most of its revenue on elective surgeries or something, they might do the math after they sign up and realize that they really don't actually want to create shared savings because it's, let's just say, fiscally disadvantageous in other ways. Exactly. You know, you've got a hospital that their whole business model is around putting people in beds and they might have a physician health organization, but really the purpose of that physician health organization, which has really historically been a loss leader, has really been in place to drive inpatient beds. And so they worried about leakage and all of those kind of things. Now they get an ACO because they see the world is changing and I can't be left out of the game. Most of the hospitals early on really became part of an ACO so they could get the data. They really didn't change how they operated. And so you put those in the mix and then you're not going to see the savings overall. So some people were signing up for the ACO because they saw that data and they're like, oh, I want that data. Well, it's, you know, it's business. And we hope that our physicians and frontline folks think less about that than, than others. It is a business. I used to consult with hospital execs thinking about moving to value-based healthcare. And, and it's hard. And one of my favorite lines was, you know, guys, you can either keep on doing what you're doing and end up like Blockbuster, or you can really pivot and be Netflix. And it's true. And that's what a lot of them have to do. And, and Blockbuster didn't end well because it was forced upon them. And in this case, I think the independent entrepreneurial physician groups who are leading the way and finding success are really forcing hospitals to look at this differently. 
So they're going to be slow adopters because of the disincentives. But over time, I think they're going to be forced to go down that path. And and at the highest level, I think they want to because they realize it's, it's better care for patients. It's just a difficult journey. And if there was only upside risk, I mean, there was no disadvantage of signing up and seeing how it went. And it, it sounds like if you have all of these entities, some of which are incredibly adept and have changed their business model and are PCP driven, but also in the pool, you know, the, the, the cohort that's being averaged together to figure out what the average is across the whole ACO mix, you're, you're going to have some of the less successful that may be, may be making the average a little bit lower, it sounds like. Exactly. So as a primary care physician, signing up for an ACO could also be about the MIPS payment. So the merit-based incentive payments, which was enacted in 2015, started to really hit the doctors in 2019. Basically, if you're not in an ACO, you still do have to report some sort of quality to Medicare. What quality improvement activities are you doing? How are you promoting interoperability? And if you're on the low end of that bell curve, there is a possibility of you getting a plus or minus 9% of your fee schedule. So by kind of burying your head and not thinking about an ACO, even without being in an ACO, the government is now trying to figure out how to reward physicians that are practicing with better outcomes and quality. So just in a straight fee-for-service world, you could still get an increase or a decrease on your just plain fee-for-service payment. I could see with shared savings, if the benchmark was the past three years, and I did a bang-up job, the first years, am I now being benchmarked against my achievements in the past? So that the bar has to keep getting lower and lower and lower. And at a certain point, I would assume you can't go lower than you can possibly go. Is that a disincentive to stay in an ACO model for longer than a certain period of time? Well, that was always the fear in the beginning. That's what we heard from everybody. But that's really why you now have direct contracting and, you know, these MA and ACO models are kind of converging. And so if you're getting paid for your entire cost of care upfront globally, then you get to decide how you distribute that money. And that's really different than just trying to figure out how to get savings year over year. And so that's why these models are evolving. So it sounds like kind of what you're saying is if you can manage the MSSP ACO, like maybe that's your first step, then you can get into, let's just say, riskier endeavors because you have the infrastructure in place already with the MSSP. It's like a first step into a more risk-based. Exactly. Yes. So that's exactly the best way to put it. The MSSP was really intended to be glide pass towards risk. So That's why they gave so many years of upside only. It was really a glide path toward risk. And to Nicole's point, they also, Medicare also recognized the flaws in the calculation and the fear that people had. So Medicare has introduced a whole bunch of nuances to overcome that, such as regionality. So if you're already a high-performing, low-cost ACO, more of your benchmark will be dependent upon a region. So you just need to be the best in your area. So there's a bunch of nuances to the benchmarking. But I think ultimately they are trying to fix everything in these new direct contracting models. So if we're talking about just setting out here, so not someone, I'll circle around to what some of these ACOs who have been super successful are actually doing to attain their success. But what are the big fails that you see? Like, you know, there definitely are horror stories out there in the marketplace of of people who have 
attempted to do this ACO thing and just did not achieve the best of, of success. And I think you touched on a couple of them earlier, some of them being what's the culture of the physicians that are part of this or that need to be part of it? Because if they're still very, you know, I'm just going to tap this FFS vein as long as I possibly can and why should I change or do anything differently, then obviously this is not going to be super successful. Do either of you have anything that you either want to add to that point or what are the other sort of like, you know, hashtag fails that tend to go on, which are doomed? Well, I think it took a while to get all the right analytics to really understand what it is you need to look for. And so I think early on, especially the ones that weren't highly capitalized, struggled. They thought they were going to just throw all this stuff to doctors who were already busy seeing patients and didn't quite give the support for doctors that they needed to participate in these models. There's a lot of stuff about transforming doctors versus the way I look at it is, is the doctor is the lead. They're the executive in the practice. They need a support team to you know, do analytics, to figure out which patients need to come in at what cadence and help them bring those patients in. And so, you know, it's been an evolution and a lot of them kind of failed because they didn't have the understanding of what was needed. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't have the systems. I'd say a lot of what we did in Florida with the Florida Association of ACOs is, you know, we just said, hey guys, let's come together. This is the wild, wild west. Everybody's kind of flying by the seat of their pants, not knowing how to do these things. Let's best practice. I don't think everywhere in the country did that. Kelly and I both can go look at an ACO and probably within five or six questions, figure out why they were successful or why they weren't. Probably has less to do with the quality of their doctors as it does with all of that support stuff I just talked about. What I'm inferring from what you're saying is that there is a mind shift and and a kind of like a paradigm shift that's necessary here. And the devil's in the details. It might not be something that any individual ACO has the bandwidth or the revenue or even the data points, really, the ends to accomplish individually. So getting aggregated with a bunch of other practices might be a way to accelerate learning. Yeah, I agree. And Kelly, you know, Kelly built one of the the most successful ones. We were actually one of the fewest, you know, we started with a very, very small infrastructure of about a million dollars that the physicians actually raised themselves. And I think that, I know we were talking about hashtag epic fails, but I think hashtag epic success is having the physicians actually fund their own endeavor. So I think that gave them a lot of skin in the game to make sure that this worked. One of the things that I think is the epic fail is when somebody puts an ACO together and has a whole bunch of primary care physicians sign up and they don't even know they're in an ACO. They just signed up because other people were signing up or they didn't want to miss the boat. So I think that's a huge problem. Just as patient engagement is like a number one key success indicator, so is physician engagement. If you don't have the physicians trying to understand these roles and trying to make those changes, then it doesn't work. And I can definitely see that, you know, like there's this paper going around and everyone just sort of signs it and is not really committed. So what's your advice? Like, so say I, I wanted to kick off a, an ACO and there's a bunch of doctors that are in the ACO that are either not committed or worst case, working at cross purposes, would the best thing to do be kick them out? What do you do? Well, so Medicare, when you fill out your application for an ACO, Medicare absolutely wants to see that you have some remedial action plan for for physicians that are not working towards the mission. However, most ACOs I find will give that physician a a lot of chances. There'll be good report cards, there'll be good analytics, they'll have other physician champions who are trying to pull that physician along. And they give them a lot of chances. And then if they still don't want to participate and they still don't want to put the patient first and act as though they were a patient-centered medical home, 
then they will let them go. But it takes a lot, I think, for an ACO to cut a physician loose, especially if they're trying. They will help them in any way they can. Yeah, it almost sounds like, though, it's as essential as it is to be able to recruit physicians committed to the mission into the program. It, it, it sounds like it might be equally imperative to figure out how you're going to lose physicians that turn out to be, you know, in it for the data. Right. You've got to remember that we talked about benchmarks, but it's not individual benchmarks. It's the whole ACO. So if you, if you have 50% of the doctors really working hard on being the safest doctor and having never events and coordinating care and bending that cost curve, and then you have 50% of the doctors not doing that, then you don't have any savings. So it's in the best interest of the whole group to get into the same boat. And honestly, data is key to that conversation. You know, a lot of doctors believe they're doing the right care, but until you show them, you know, here's your patients. These you, Your patients are going to the hospital and you, you're not even aware of it. See how many of your patients are going to these specialists. You start to bring that data to the physician and it really does open their eyes. I, I believe most physicians want to care for their patients in the right way. And a lot of it, they just don't, didn't even, they're so busy running on that fee-for-service hamster wheel. They can't even look out of outside of who's presented to them. They're just not aware of it. And so giving them the data, telling them that story, telling them how they can make a difference, supporting them by bringing the right patients in at the right time, that's how you really change the way physicians work. It's really mostly giving them help. And there's, you know, there's always a few bad apples, but for the most part, I think it's putting that structure and that engagement in place. I'll give you a good example. So when when I first started the ACO, I went to the doctor and I said to him, how are all your diabetic patients? And he said, all of my diabetic patients are well controlled. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because I see them. I said, well, what about the ones that you don't see? And it was that simple. The light bulb went off in his head like, you're right. I don't reach out to them and bring them in. I only see them when they come in and if they come in. So it occurred to him, I do have a population of people that I don't see and I don't even know that I'm not seeing them. So it's very interesting once you start to put that data in front of them. One physician told me, and I'll never forget it, he said, this feels so good if it wasn't from the government, I wouldn't believe it because it is the way we want to treat patients anyways. We've had to learn to adopt to a very broken, fragmented, volume-driven, fee-for-service way of doing business. So they actually love the concept and love getting paid for the work that they're doing. In fact, episode 321 with Dr. Rich Glasgow drills into exactly that point, that by arming physicians with actual data relative to their practice patterns, most find really helpful. It could be probably one of the easiest and fairest ways to get rid of low-value care, actually. What are the things that amazing, well-run ACOs have in common? Like, what are the just absolutely essential things that you're never going to run across a really well-run ACO that doesn't have? So I think they have a great analytics team. You know, they're, they're able to take that data in timely, turn it around. Where are the systemic problems that drive costs and quality issues? Then they're able to then connect into the clinical systems that have more of the real-time clinical data to bring in actionable activities. I think having that engagement, both on the patient side and the physician side, is absolutely critical. And having centralized support, centralized care coordinators with the ability to schedule on behalf of the doctors is pretty powerful. Not asking the physician to do all the work, I think, is is maybe the nuance there. Just three simple things that I think all successful ACOs, or at least in my informal survey of ACOs that received shared savings, where annual wellness visits at a rate of 70 to 80% of their population, they should do an annual wellness visit on every single year. When we first started the ACO program in 2012, the national average was 10% of the population got annual wellness visits. So that's been huge. 
doing a transitional care management visit on a patient that's discharged from a hospital, which simply means you call the patient within 48 hours and you do a medication reconciliation. You check to make sure they got their home health, their oxygen, whatever else they may need. And then you bring them into the primary care physician's office within seven or 14 days of that discharge. That has proven to be extremely successful. They actually, and I've seen a couple of case studies say that it saves up between two and $3,000 over a 90-day period after they've been discharged, just because that primary got involved right away and made sure that everything that was supposed to happen did happen. And then care coordination, you know, whether you bill for care coordination, there is a code for it now, or you don't, just having some ability to coordinate care with the patients, I think, Those three things I see across the board as unsuccessful ECOs. So let me summarize here. We have some kind of centralized analytics, some kind of centralized number crunching that goes on. Then both of you mentioned some kind of care coordination. Nicole, you said centralized care coordination. And Kelly, you mentioned the same thing and you might even be able to bill for it. Then Kelly, you were talking very specifically about these annual wellness visits making sure that the doctors are taking care of that transition of care visit. CMS did, which I thought was pretty insightful, is that not only did they roll out these shared savings programs that if you shared globally, you shared in that that big bonus payment, but they also created what I call value CPT codes. They created one for transition of care. They created one for chronic care management. They created one for remote patient monitoring. And so, and they created one for annual wellness visit, really to incent real-time current payment, the traditional way doctors were used to getting paid to do value activities. And Kelly mentioned those in, when she talked about the things that really had amazing outcomes. And so it was a way for CMS to not only say, if you do these things, you're going to save, you're going to share in savings at the end of this contract, but also we're going to pay you real-time to, to incent this behavior up front. And so it's, it's just all of that, you know, and you definitely summarized it, right? But you know, there's so much here that you know, it's hard to cover in, in one, one conversation. If I'm an individual doctor, you know, with my team, we've got the central analytics that are going on in some back room somewhere or another, but obviously I've got to do something with the data. Is there some sort of structure that I need to have in place? Like, do I need to have a dedicated person that's just getting the secure messages every morning with lists of patients to do things with? Because as you were saying, this isn't something that the doctor's dealing with somebody's chief complaint and then they're getting like pop-ups about how this person just missed their flu shot. Well, back to your question on the big fails versus the big wins is those of us that really saw that you can't throw all this on the doctor are the ones that saw more success. So it is kind of being that administrative support team to centralize not only the review of the analytics that the claims data that comes from CMS to find where those opportunities or systemic problems are, but then those people that put in those programs that there are some clinical things, alerts coming from remote patient monitoring or or activity that's happening in the EMRs or the HIEs, you know, the doctors aren't going to be able to take all those messages in. And a lot of fails where you had all this technology being put in place and it was a doctor all of a sudden, not only is he still seeing 30, 40 patients a day, but now he's getting 100 alerts. They just ignore them. And that creates worse care, really. And so you have to, in order to put all these new functions, new way of looking at proactive outreach and and problem solving ahead of time, you've got to put new people in the mix where their sole job is to look at that and handle that and work around the doctor so the doctor can be, this is now overused, but work at the top of their license. They can't be the administrative, the secretary, the, the coordinator, 
and be this great diagnostician that is going to solve what's wrong with this patient. You know, you have to build these teams to support them. And that really goes to the crux of what fails or what doesn't. So before I uh, let Kelly weigh in on this, you said add new people in the mix. Who exactly are those people? Like if you're just going to tick down, who do you need? So you need analytics people. You've got these kind of business analysis or program managers that can develop the programs. You have a lot of change management with the actual practice. So you need practice consultants or folks that are constantly reinforcing that maybe there's people calling patients that are centralized, but when those patients come in, you know, there there has to be some change in the practice. And a lot of it is those folks that have traditionally been in the practice that wrap around the docs. You know, there's care coordinators, there's patient advocates, navigators, all those support people. I do think that originally there was a lot of nurses and you know, there was a thought there was a lot of clinical decision making that had to happen. And I think what we found over time that most of it is good block and tackling, good systems, good analytics, and then good care coordinator type people more than clinical people. Some of the things we didn't go a little bit deeper on is a network. So you need to surround yourself with a network. So those analytics can tell you of all the skilled nursing facilities my patients are going to which ones are doing the better job, which ones have higher star ratings, which ones are keeping on average every patient for 25 days, which ones are keeping them for 19 days. Why is that a difference? In South Florida, just looking at the analytics regarding healthcare fraud, you know, for DMEs, back braces, the probably the biggest example we could give you would be home health. One of the reasons the government started this program is they could not understand the variance across all of the country where the home health per capita in North Dakota was $79 per patient on average. And in uh, Miami, it was $3,000. So they said, why is that? Are the patients in Miami sicker than the patients in North Dakota? And when they really, the ACOs got a hold of all this data, they were able to make some decisions that there was some fraud and abuse, and they were able to clean that up as being part of an, an ACO. So I think we didn't talk about that. But And then one other piece I would say that would be very valuable as you add people in is just the whole behavioral health, just adding in a really good care team, not just care coordinators, but social service. We didn't talk about the social determinants of health, that so much has everything to do about the type of health care the patients are receiving or what we can provide for them. So there's just a whole host of things that having all this data opens up the physician and the provider's eyes, but they can't, the way that Medicare gives us all this data is very, very complex. And you really do need people that A, number one, know how to prioritize which data to pull because it's so much data and you can get very easily lost in the metadata. And two, just knowing how to do it and how to work with it. So it's an exciting time that everybody seems to be moving in this direction. And at the end of the day, just uh, say this last thing, this pandemic, if nothing else, has shown us that, you know, the ACOs were well positioned to reach out to those frail and vulnerable patients. When hospitals try to become a high reliability organization, which is being the safest hospital in the area and having never events, all of these things, a high reliability organization, a pandemic and an ACO all require the same core competencies to be successful. All of the reasons, all of these nuances and and kind of new and different skill sets, what my takeaway is to everything that both of you have just brought up is that it sounds like there is definitely many learnings that have, I mean, this is not a new program, so people have already figured this out. There's no reason for anybody to be trying to figure it out themselves these days, it sounds like. Exactly. I think early on, you know, you had so many different flavors and models because it was, like I said, the wild, wild west. But you had companies like mine early on, you know, Citra Health, which was an ACO enablement company. You had Imperium. You now have Allidate. You have Caravan. 
these companies have come into existence because we can help ACOs roll this out very quickly, do it well. They can sometimes, you know, bring their best competencies to the table and then, you know, a la carte choose where their gaps are from companies like this, you know, but, but at the end of the day, it's no longer a new model. We know what works and there's help out there. Nicole, if someone is interested in learning more about the work that you do, where would you direct them? And I know you've got several things going on, so maybe there's different places, but where would you send people? Well, I think for you know the ACO model, I would send them to FLACOS, which is the Florida Association of ACOs. They can access it with www.flaacos.com. We're also, Kelly and I are rolling out Value H Network, which is really the way to aggregate ACOs and high-performing groups and into one large network that can bring all of these services together to help not only the ACOs, but the doctors that they support and also help them with contracting. And so that's valueh.com. And of course, anybody, Kelly and I are very both network people. And so both of us are available via LinkedIn or our emails, which I think are out there as well. So, you know, happy, happy to chat and talk where everybody, where anybody needs help. Kelly, do you have any places to add to the list? Yes. Yeah, so I work for Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting, and then you can always go to Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. But to Nicole's point, you know, reaching out to us at Flacos or Value Age also works because we are really on a strong mission to aggregate these shared learnings, as I think you put it, and collaborate. We really think fee-for-service is the competition because it's not good for the patients, it's not good for the doctors, and it's certainly not good for the trust fund. So we're both very eager to help anybody that uh, wants to know more about these models. Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.